Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 57 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. So, how's things? <laughs> it's been a little too long since I released an episode. You know, usually I try to get one every couple, two, three weeks, um, and I realize it's been way longer than that. But you know what? Here I am, ready to talk. So, our everyday sangha has been studying the book Dharma Breeze, Essays on Shin Buddhism. It's an amazing book by Nabu Haneda, a wonderful teacher in the lineage of Bright Dawn Center and its founder, Reverend Gilme Kabose. I don't talk about Shin Buddhism much on this podcast, but it is the Buddhist practice and study that is my Buddhist home. Shin Buddhism is like a forgotten jewel or a, a, a buried jewel of Buddhism in the West. Shin Buddhism follows the teachings of Shinran, who lived from 1173 to 1262, and he taught, as the way Haneda puts it, um, the importance of humility. Haneda said, quote, most people think that the ultimate goals in Buddhism, as well as human life, are to become good. But according to Shinran, it is to become humble. We must know the existence of our ineradicable egoism. We must know our ignorance. We must know the limitation of our intellects, unquote. In one of the essays within the book, the essay called The Priceless Jewel Within Us, Haneda helps us understand what is the priceless jewel, the something perfect that exists within us. The stories he relates within the essay point to the ways we usually search for priceless jewels or something perfect, like enlightenment or spiritual peace or happiness or whatever we consider that perfect thing, maybe the perfect person. We search and search and search on the outside because we don't see anything in front of us or in us, sort of like that post-it note that's been hanging around too long on your kitchen counter. You just don't see it anymore. Haneda points us to the exact spot where we will find what we're looking for. He points to what we already have within us here and now, and that's life. Now, he says that life might not sound like a profound religious or Buddhist concept, but there is no greater or deeper religious concept, according to him. And he says, as many teachers teach, quote, becoming a Buddha means becoming awakened to life. He goes on to share that one of the most simple but profound stories that I've heard in a long time 
and it'll stay with me for probably my whole life as a mantra. It's the story of the Shin follower, Hisako Nakamara. She lost her limbs to frostbite in childhood and had to resort to working in the circus. But despite her hard life, she wrote the poem titled Aru, 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 meaning I have it, I have it, I have it. Now I want to share a very personal story with you about how I am just learning to discover that priceless jewel within me and to resonate with that mantra. I have it, I have it, I have it. As you all know, if you've listened to me for any length of time, I've studied and practiced Buddhism seriously for more than 30 years. I've learned many things. I've experienced many realizations, some deep, not so deep, that have helped me be a better person and also helped me overcome many internal challenges in my life. And yet... It wasn't until these past 14, 15 months of the COVID pandemic that I realized I had lost or never actually found the priceless jewel of my Buddha nature, my true self, at the core of my being. Now, I'm telling you this story in part because I think A lot of the problems I see with Buddhist and other religious teachers and practitioners is that the deeper they seem to get in their spiritual practice, the more they are capable of deluding themselves, either in a performative way, like posing or positioning for others, or because they have completely deluded themselves to what is really happening within them. They hide their humanness behind the beauty and strength of their own words or the words they quote in sutras, scriptures, and so on, and they hide their brokenness. They hide it so much, I think, that they themselves even start believing that they aren't broken, that they can't be broken, or they can't be that broken. But being broken is the clue to where the jewel is hidden. And being broken is sort of the, I don't know, the I think it's the priceless jewel within Shin Buddhism. Being broken and understanding that we are broken by our very humanness. That's the nature of our humanness, that ignorance or that anything that tends to break us is, is what makes us who we are. And again, it's the clue to where the priceless jewel that you're looking for is hidden. You know, like the Japanese art of kintsugi or golden joinery, where broken pottery is mended with a lacquer mixed with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. This art expresses the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, or embracing what is flawed, or embracing what is perfect which is life as it is. Just look at the central structure of Buddhism in the three marks of existence, which are impermanence, suffering, and emptiness, or no no self. Not a lot of perfection to be found in those things. But in this art of kintsugi to repairing the broken parts with gold, it's it's an honor to the whole self in all its brokenness. 
rather than a disguise or a hiddenness of what is broken. And actually, those broken parts are illuminated, called attention to. The story I want to share with you today in this podcast episode is how the COVID pandemic triggered a reactivation of complex trauma I have experienced in my life. I've read and heard from therapists that trauma reactivation and the experience of new trauma is a scary side effect of this pandemic and one that, according to them, they think we as a global community will be dealing with for many, many years, maybe decades. And the more <clears throat> the more I read and explored what were, what I was ex- about what I was experiencing, the more I realized I wasn't alone. However, when the reactivation began interfering in my behaviors, my relationships with others, my thinking, and my ability to cope, I couldn't deny it or cover it up with excuses, or hide behind my meditation and Buddhist practice. The crack was getting bigger, and it was showing now. And yet, I kept thinking and saying to myself, I've done all this work through Buddhist practice. Surely I don't have that big of a crack. I can handle this. I'm I'm not really broken, but I am. I am broken. And it's a very big break that goes back many, many years. And only now, at 68 years old, I am discovering and looking at all those broken parts with the help of virtual somatic and trauma healing practices and finally working with a therapist, a doctor of psychology and psychoanalyst who specializes in trauma, I am discovering the golden parts that were only illumined when I began to look at them. They become, became illumined by my own willingness to look at them. You know, in a previous episode, episode 44, Chaos in Order, I shared much of where my complex trauma began. I shared that although I wasn't a consciously aware of being uh, marginalized as a gay woman in the life I lived right now, my past is full of both active and veiled dismissal of the gay me I identified with as a young preteen, teen, young, and middle-aged adult. And here now in my senior years, it seems somehow very, very far away and at the same time very, very close. There were many traumatic events connected to my struggle to be who I was while also struggling to fit in, to be accepted, to be loved for who I was. It was a very different time in the 1960s compared to today. Society at large associated any sexual identity or orientation outside of cisgender and heterosexual as deviant. Yeah. Deviant. In sociology, deviance describes an action or behavior that violates, notice the word, violates social norms, either formally or informally. In other words, behavior that does not conform. Deviant behavior. I realized this was a problem for me at a very young age. I, I remember 
listening to my transistor radio, maybe, I don't know, when I was 10 or 11. And, and it, it convinced me that I was in violation because I was listening to these talk shows. You know, they were, they were talking about, well, you know, they were kind of advanced for the time. They were talk, there was one talk show I remember um, was an interview with lesbians. The thing I remember the most was learning about the Greek island of Lesbos. This was something that appealed to me at this age. You know, it was kind of like a little story. And Lesbos and its mythical or not association with lesbians. Then and there, I decided that, well, that's how I was going to fit in as I got older. That would be my future home as an adult. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I knew that clearly I couldn't live here in the world that I saw around me where I was a deviant. Since that time, I struggled with both being me and hiding me. Falling in love with my best friend and writing about that love and our sexual experimentation at, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 years old, in my diary, hidden between my mattress and box springs, well, that initiated the first major trauma of my young gay life. Since homosexuality was considered deviant during the 60s, parents were faced with very different challenges than they are now when confronted with a child identifying as, say, lesbian, gay, transsexual. It would be natural for a parent at that time to react in shock and fear and try to work it out with other adults without any consultation with or consideration of the potential trauma that it could cause a young personality. And that is, in fact, what my mother did. She consulted with my friend's parents, and I believe the school too, and a proactive campaign of separation was launched. We were not to associate with each other again. I imagine the thinking was that, like the harmful effects of drugs, you must separate your gay child from their temptations to save them from their deviant selves. I honestly understand that thinking from my own perspective right now and based on what I know of the 1960s, the mid-1960s. And I have come to accept what my mother did as coming from a place of love and protection for me. Yet that acceptance of my mother's compassion and intention and understanding did not help soothe the rejected and traumatized child at that time or the child of the time, or the one that still lives inside of me. That was just the first in a series of life-denying events surrounding my sexual identity. But I believe it was the deepest wound for me. Later at 18, off to college with my best friend and then college roommate, the tension of my hidden sexual identity exploded. I communicated it to who? Who, uh, someone who I thought was my best friend, thinking acceptance for me was a given, even though I knew it was not the type of love I felt that I felt for her was reciprocal. I still thought her love for me as a friend would help her embrace me in a way that would help me take some steps forward in this kind of troubled way to live at the time. But again, another life-denying series of events of major proportions were set in motion by that innocent confession. 
I was removed from our shared dorm room, relocated to a group room of jocks, put into therapy, and eventually drank, took drugs, missed classes, and ended in a mental breakdown. Leaving college, I was admitted to a a psychiatric ward because of my depression by my parents. I submitted because there was not much life left in me. I was totally crushed. I had a therapist in that ward who was trying to change me from gay to straight, and because of the little success in reversing my condition, plans were made for electroconvulsive therapy as the next step. But thankfully, my parents did not sign the papers, and I was released from the hospital. It was a long and painful road from then on, with multiple rejections and dismissals of who I was by both family members and friends, leading me to leave and move in with a woman who was a bad choice for me. Remember, this was all happening soon after the time of of the Stonewall Inn raid in 1969. I experienced police raids of gay bars in dangerous sections of Cleveland. I was poisoned in one of them, and I have haunting memories of rushing out of the bars through back doors and weaving our way through our alleys to make our way to safety, the safety of our car, and then home to our suburban apartment because that kind of behavior was considered illegal at the time. Now, I'm sharing this meandering trip through the past to remind all of us that each one of us may be carrying around trauma that has been triggered by the psychological and sociopolitical effects raining down on us from the chaos in our inner and outer worlds during this past year plus. The events of the last months triggered traumatic reactions to the past that have lived quietly inside of me for many, many years. I had a little brush with its reappearance in 2011 during the fight for marriage equality and because of other challenges in my life, but this time it seemed to go deeper and it hurt way more. Or maybe I looked it in the eye rather than repressing it, so maybe I just felt more. The pandemic and a seemingly broad social dismissal of those over 60 or with compromised immune systems and underlying health conditions, all of which I have, triggered the resurgence of my past trauma and periodic bouts of depression, anger, and even rage. Feeling again that somehow I didn't matter. Feeling again that somehow I was deviant, not worthy of any kind of love. It triggered sort of a a breakdown of the young child in me that was hurt way, way, way back then. The young child who now wants to just throw something or, 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 or say, why, why, why? I fully feel the rage of any marginalized people. I fully feel in a completely embodied way that fatigue in fighting for your inherent right to live your life and just be who you are. I do not pretend to to totally understand in that same embodied way how it feels to have black skin and carry a multi-generational trauma on your back, but I do understand how it feels to be marginalized by the major aspects of your very being, maybe not your skin color, but maybe your health or lack of it in illness or your sexual identity. 
and your choice of partners, your choice of gender. And in being triggered, I needed a way to accept the woundedness, the hurt, and the anger full on without repressing it. That's why I sought therapy. Repression does cause anger, but opening to your own hurt is a compassionate response. It is the first verse, after all, in the meta vows and the first part of meta practice. May I be happy and well. May no harm come to me. May I learn compassion. That sort of meta, that sort of compassion has to start with us before we have any capability of sharing it with another. So I have begun a long healing journey that even in its beginning stages, I've already seen it revealing at least one very important teaching. And that is the teaching I want to leave you with today. It is the words of Shakyamuni as he was dying, quoted by Haneda in the book Dharma Breeze. Ananda, Shakyamuni said, Ananda, this world is so beautiful, so wonderful. And as Haneda points out, yes, this world is wonderful precisely because of the suffering and of the tragedy. I have begun begun to discover the true existential happiness at the core of my being by learning how to dive in there, into the core, through deep body or somatic experiences and through meditation encompassing both top-down from conceptual thought to the body and body up and bottom up from the somatic or bodily experiences to the mind. I have discovered how therapists and trauma healers talk about the self. That's a self with a capital S. I think the concept of no self in Buddhism is so misunderstood as a denial of self rather than a confusion about what self is. So misunderstood that we have actually disconnected from our bodies and disconnected from real and true practices of self-compassion and self-love. These practices are not about being all ego, but about discovering that priceless jewel I mentioned at the beginning. If that jewel is covered in broken bits at the pit of your stomach or wherever else you bury trauma in your solar plexus, in your chest, in your neck, you will not have the capacity or have limited capacity to have compassion for anyone because you've disconnected from the very source, the very energy of boundless light and love that lives within you as your true self with a capital S or your Buddha nature. I leave you with this. I am broken. And my broken bits are just starting to glimmer as I begin to heal. I am beginning to see and to love that perfect jewel inside of me. I am learning to listen to it, to hold it, to love it, and to accept it just as it is. I have it. I have it. I have it. That's it for this episode. 
Don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week and now at a new time on Saturday mornings. That's every other Saturday at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. It may be a better time for some of you who thought previously about joining and Thursday evenings just weren't good for you. So consider doing so. You can find out all about it at my website, www.everyday-buddhism.com. And you click on the More tab, and that'll take you to Join Membership Community or Everyday Sangha. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do so, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, education series, a private Facebook group, and hopefully more to come. And if you just like to leave a one-time donation, there is a donate tab on my website. So that's it for now, and until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. (laughs) 